0: Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and importantly, appreciation. The program is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia and streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are available via both 3CR and Freedom of Species websites with all podcasts being available via iTunes. Welcome to Freedom Species. I'm Kate Gracie, and last week I spoke with Paul Marney here in the studio. Paul's a campaigner on climate change and animal rights, and he also has a blog called Terrastendo. Now, Paul's recently undertaken an investigation to unravel some of the links between environmental advocacy groups and the livestock industry. This has resulted in a 15-minute presentation called The Link That Too Many Ignore that Paul has availed online. Paul, you and I have spoken before about our frustrations on the failure of many of the local climate change advocacy groups to to campaign on this animal agriculture aspect Mm. of of climate change. And now you've gone and you've done these investigations Mm. and you've created Mm. this very illuminating online presentation. (laughs) Mm. Can you give us a bit of a just a brief taster of what your investigations have revealed?
1: Yeah, so the, the presentation is talking about the interaction of various people involved in the livestock sector with environmental groups in Australia. And I, I start with Anna Rose, who was a founder of Australian Youth Climate, or co-founder of Australian Youth Climate Coalition. And I was interested to find that she had a, a background in a family cattle farm, as well as wheat, but they, they certainly farm cattle. And also... Mark Wooten, who is a Victorian-based cattle farmer, who is married to Eve Cantor, who is the, a niece of of Rupert Murdoch. And Rob Purvis, who has a pastoralist family background as, as well as some industrial background, and he's been involved in other industries himself. Uh, but he, he also owns a, a cattle farm at the moment. And also Meat and Livestock Australia, who... Have contracted with Professor Tim Flannery, the former Australian of the Year, and they have uh, also uh, provided funding to Professor Richard Eckhart from Melbourne University, who's involved with Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute. So uh, I also comment on Dairy Australia, who who also provide funding to Richard Eckhart. So it's really looking at the links that those organisations have with. Various individuals and organisations in, in the Australian environmental movement with a focus on climate change and the further links that, that those individuals then have. So it's quite a, a web, which I've outlined in the presentation, uh, between those livestock sector participants or people with some background in livestock uh, with environmental organisations and and individuals involved in environmental campaigning and climate change campaigning.
0: Yeah, look, when I looked at it, I thought it was fascinating. It was certainly um, news to me. I, mm. I mean, I knew that there was this this kind of cone of mm. silence on the issues, but mm. then to see mm. to see the web that you created was fascinating. Well,
1: all, all I'm saying, too, is these links exist. So, like mm. I say, it's not undercover stuff here. These This information is publicly available, and I'm not suggesting, and I say in the presentation that I'm not suggesting that anybody has been influenced by these links or that the people in the livestock sector are trying to influence others. But I'm just mapping it out. And there are lots of other links, I'm sure. We, you know, we've just dis- discussed a, a couple that you've mentioned. So I'm sure I'll expand on this in future and look at it a bit further and just see. Because I've mentioned Meat and Livestock Australia, but only in terms of a couple of links that they have. But they're, they're, they're very, very big on PR and as I've said in the presentation as well, they've only got two roles, really. One is research and development and the other one is marketing. And I'm, I'm not sure myself that those two roles are really compatible. So I'd, I'd like to highlight that. And they do a lot of work in marketing. I mean, they're, they're acting on behalf of Australia's beef and, and sheep meat producers and, and goat meat producers. So if they're in the business of marketing... Personally, I'd be a bit wary about the R&D that's coming out of there.
0: I'd like to explore that, what you found. I'd like to explore that further. I want to hear about what these links are. But before we go there, can we just backpedal a little bit and go back to the basics of what are the contributions that animal agriculture make Mm. to climate change?
1: Well, they're very significant and there's some interrelated factors that come into it. And one is that animal food products are an incredibly inefficient way of obtaining our nutrition because we are growing all this produce, we're growing crops to feed the animals, and we're feeding this produce to the animals who require the nutrition themselves for their own purposes and are using that nutrition. And those animals are living for a certain period and then we're killing them and getting those nutrients from the animals at the end of the day. So it's an incredibly inefficient process because we lose so much of the nutrients on the way. And that means that we need a, a lot more resources than we would otherwise need if we were getting that those nutrients directly from the plants. And that means that there, we use resources like land. We use a, an awful lot more land because of animal food production than we would if we were... Getting all those nutrients directly from from plants, and I should mention just as an example that soybeans per kilogram have about thirty five percent more protein than beef. So wow, that's a lot. It is a lot, and there's a lot of nut- nutrition. In fact, I've I did some work a few years ago looking at the nutrient content of the foods produced in Australia and calculated that about 81% of the protein produced in Australia is in the form of plant products, and only 19% comes from animal products. Now, there's a little bit of double counting there because some of those plant products are fed to animals, but it's not significant because the animal figure is quite low anyway. So 81% of the protein is coming from plants anyway. But getting back to the point here that that, that inherent inefficiency is a key factor because we're using more fertilizer, more land, etc, and the fertilizers themselves are, are contributing to emissions. There's also the issue of emissions directly from the animals and things like methane. And, and nitrous oxide, so the methane is belched and breathed by the animals, and nitrous oxide comes from manure primarily, so does methane, and these sorts of factors contribute to very high levels of greenhouse gas emissions, because some of these gases that I mentioned, like methane and nitrous oxide, are, are far, far more potent than CO2 as greenhouse gas you know, for example, over a twenty-year time frame, measured over a twenty-year time frame, methane is about eighty-six times more potent than CO two as a greenhouse gas, and nitrous oxide is nearly three hundred times more potent than CO two as a greenhouse gas. And the methane has been described as carbon on steroids by certain scientists, and, and cows are converting the carbon that's in the grass to this carbon on steroids and, and, and breathing and belching it into the atmosphere. So there's some of the factors that that really make animal agriculture a, a very significant problem in terms of climate change.
0: And how quickly do
1: we need to act on this? Well, I believe people like James Hansen and other climate change campaign. James Hansen is a very well-credentialed US scientist. He used to be head of climate change at NASA. And he regards this as a a global emergency. We really have no time. We really have to start acting urgently on all aspects of climate change. Because I argue that we will not overcome climate change unless we deal with fossil fuels as well as animal agriculture. Mm. So we have to start dealing with fossil fuels. Uh, There is a very nasty issue with fossil fuels, by the way around aerosols, because a lot of aerosols, which are particulates in the atmosphere produced by the burning of fossil fuels, they're actually masking some of the solar radiation uh, from hitting... they're preventing some of the solar radiation having as big an impact as it would... And those particulates can disappear within days if we stop burning the fossil fuels and there would be a spike in global temperatures as a result because there'd be increased solar radiation. So <coughs> you're
0: saying that the, the fossil fuels are actually doing us actually a favour right now?
1: In, in one way they are. James Hansen and also David Spratter, a local campaigner, refer to the Forstian bargain. They just say we, we basically painted ourselves into a corner here. We've done a deal with the devil, if you like. We we've relied on fossil fuels that have created this masking or this global dimming. They refer to it as global dimming. So it, it's it's softening the impact of the solar radiation, but at the same time, the CO2 itself is is absorbing the radiation as it as it's leaving the earth and and creating a blanket and it's 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 retaining the the energy and the warmth. In the atmosphere, so that's that's warming the Earth, but there, there's this other effect as well. So we have a major problem with fossil fuels that we need to stop burning them. We need to get the CO two, but we absolutely need to start absorbing the CO two from the atmosphere to help offset some of this increase that mm-hmm. would cause if we stop burning the fossil fuels as well. And a very good way to absorb the co2 from the atmosphere is to allow revegetation of so so reforest and allow other forms of wooded vegetation to regenerate and grasses
0: to regenerate and start drawing down some of that co2 so basically if we stop grazing livestock and letting those pastures absolutely become wooded yep. vegetation yeah
1: that's right that's right uh, there, there's been a couple of studies globally where we, uh, the PBL, Netherlands uh, Environmental Assessment Agency, uh, have previously estimated that that if the globe, if the, popul- the world's population converted to a plant-based diet, that we would reduce climate change mitigation costs by about 80%. If we stopped eating just meat, we would re- reduce those costs by about 70%, 70%. And a large part of this is is... Driven by the fact that we would be revegetating vast mm. tracts of land, uh, another group that at Minnesota University of Minnesota estimated, for the same sorts of reasons, that if we converted to a plant-based diet, we would have the capacity to feed another four billion people on the planet. Now we we have around 800 million people undernourished at the moment, so if we chose to, we we could easily feed those people by converting to a plant-based diet. So there's a social justice issue here as well.
0: And you're talking of feeding them because you're redirecting stock what was correct. grown yeah. as stock feed, yeah. redirecting them to That's right. the impoverished. That's right. Yeah.
1: So so uh, we we would have the capacity by claiming back those crop lands, <clears throat> excuse me, that are currently used to feed cows and sheep and other animals that we want to eat we would be able to uh, feed people with that with that produce and we would have so much more available and some of those lands could be converted to to forest again also so we wouldn't ha- even have to be growing crops on all those lands and and then there's the vast areas of grazing land as well so it's not just crops there's massive massive areas of grazing land mm. and the pro livestock groups will argue that that they're using those lands which would be no good for crops anyway they 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 they're obtaining nutrients from those lands which couldn't be used to grow crops anyway but from what the people at the university of minnesota are saying is well we could easily get enough nutrients to feed the world population and more if we if we just moved away from animal agriculture so we could leave those vast tracts of land alone that are currently being grazed and what the livestock are doing are degrading those lands and they're causing vast amounts of emissions through soil degradation as well. They're, they're releasing soil carbon. We're, we're losing the perennial grasses and, and other forms of vegetation that naturally occur on those lands through grazing, and that, that's causing a lot of the soil carbon to be released into the atmosphere. So, if we could regenerate the vegetation on those lands, we'd be Doing a, 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 a great service to the global community in, in overcoming, cl- helping to overcome climate change. Yeah.
0: And how quickly would those benefits be seen if we stopped mm. eating it, at least stopped eating meat?
1: We could a lot of forest back to something resembling forest over time. Obviously, it takes a long time to grow a tree, but the the, the forest and other vegetation would start to regrow. It's really interesting. And acting s- as a carbon sink exactly in, that, right. growth. Right, in yeah. that growth. That's right, in that growth. That's right. And one thing really interesting is if you look at a map of Africa, where for... For instance, there's over 300 million cattle in Africa at the moment. Uh, we have about in Australia about one tenth of that uh, 27, 28, 29 million, something like that. They have over 300 million in Africa and, and vast tracts of land, which we just see as savannah now, were once forests and other forms of wooded vegetation. And what they do in those areas, in the, the northern and southern Guinea savannas, they, they burn the grasses every year to regenerate grass, create green grass, and and to prevent the nasty forest from growing back. So <laughs> if you just allowed that, if you didn't do that, if you stopped the grazing and stopped the burning, that forest would regrow. But even in Australia, there are areas, the Pew Charitable Trust is a group that I've written about, and they've shown examples... Where farmers some some pastoralists have converted to ecotourism, they've removed the livestock from their lands and they've shown photos before and after and you could see the land the, the, the vegetation regenerating. And it, it's quite remarkable to see this as it happens, and and they can they can monitor it over a period of time. So there's there's an awful lot of potential there in yep. in just letting nature do its do its job and, and stop imposing
0: ourselves and our 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 products in the form of livestock on on nature. Yeah, when you talk about the burning of the savannas in Africa, I mean we know that there's enormous tracts of land in mm. northern Australia where that the mm. exactly same practice yep. is going That's on right. to regenerate. Yeah. Uh, livestock food. Mm, that's right,
1: and 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 great. There's uh, massive areas in northern Australia where the the, the 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 grasses have been cleared from grazing as well, and, and I know that's been discussed on this program mm. in the past. So there, there's again an awful lot we can do in this country. It's not just Africa yeah. and other countries. It's not just South America. Uh, yeah. and and uh, Australia's been identified by the, the by WWF as one of the what they say eleven global deforestation fronts up until 2030, and that's because of their great concerns about land clearing laws in Queensland and New South Wales, mm. uh, where the Baird government it, it government in New South Wales is looking at changing its, its vegetational laws to allow more land clearing than at present. Mm. And Campbell Newman in 2013 in Queensland reversed a previous so-called ban on broad-scale land clearing, there was still land clearing occurring, but it had reduced a lot through the so-called ban, but there were exemptions to that ban and some illegal clearing as well. And one of those exemptions was livestock fodder. But there was a big reduction, but it's been increasing very rapidly in recent times. And the current Labor government, uh, sorry, the increase has occurred since Newman reversed that ban. The current Labor government is trying to reintroduce the ban, but they are a minority government, and and they're, they're, that's a difficult process. Yeah. So uh, we 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 are leaders in a way, or we're right up there in the world as as clearers of land. And most of the land clearing in this country has has been
0: caused by by uh,
1: animal agriculture.
0: Now let's go back to your online presentation that mm-hmm. you that you researched. This is a presentation called. The link that too many ignore. Can we delve deeper into sure. mm. what you've actually uncovered? The mm-hmm. links that you've uncovered, because um, w- when I first saw the presentation, I was quite mm-hmm. gobsmacked.
1: Mm. Yeah, well, it, it's it's simply like I say, just mapping out these links through the information that's out there, and it's two, two of the key people are uh, two we mentioned earlier, Mark Whitten and and Rob Purvis, and. They're, they're wealthy cattle farmers and Purvis certainly has done more than cattle farming as well. He, he's, his family had some pastoral interests, uh, but his father was was involved in industry as well. And, and Purvis uh, got involved in that and also made a lot of his money through the aged care industry and diagnostics and things like that. But he has this background and interest in livestock production, and he's, he's operating a farm in New South Wales at the moment. But he's been quite prolific in, in donating money to various groups and being involved in various groups. And he's, he's actually president of WWF Australia, and he's a, a governor of Australian Youth Climate Coalition... And he's involved with the, the Climate Council. He's a, he's a board member of the Climate Council, which is the group that Tim Flannery heads up. It used to be, or it came out of the old Climate Commission, which was a, a government body that Tony Abbott disbanded in his first, first act after becoming prime minister. So he'd certainly targeted them. Uh, Purvis also co-founded the Wentworth Group of Concerned Scientists. Uh, He provides funds to Climate Action Network Australia, and he has provided some conference funding to a group at Melbourne University called Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute. So he's very, very involved in lots of groups and and lots of people within those groups uh, doing things elsewhere. Obviously, these organisations have boards and they're attracting people or or bringing in people who have some knowledge and expertise in climate change, so those people have have their their own activities beyond those particular groups, so that those particular connections, uh, I, I think, are, are potentially important.
0: I read something that Robert Purvis, uh, one of the things that he was really proud of was that his involvement in halting. The Broadacre Clearing mm-hmm, in Queensland mm-hmm, in in two thousand and one, yeah, yeah. which sounds mm. fairly counter yeah, sure. to a livestock mm. farmer. Mm. How do you respond to that?
1: Yeah, he, he's. Uh, I know the Wentworth Group, which he was a co-founder of, campaigned hard on that issue. And uh, uh, what what I can see is that they're campaigning on issues like land clearing. and also water use in the in the Murray Darling Basin and, and elsewhere, but they're not. Identifying animal agriculture as the, the culprit here, or they're not encouraging people to change their consumption habits and things like that. Whereas I and others are saying to people that to a large extent, it's, it's our choice. We need to change our lifestyle to deal with this, not just say we've got to stop land clearing. You've got to look at the, the, the cause of land clearing, which is consumption of animal products, uh, in Australia and also elsewhere. So it's not just what we're reading. A lot of the, the products are, are exported. But, yeah, look, it is interesting that, that Purvis and, and Groups is associated with, uh, including WWF, they, they've identified land clearing as an issue as well. But they're, they're not coming out and saying that livestock consumption is, is part of the issue here that I can see anyway. So I, I think we've got to bring the problem to individuals as well as bring in uh, system change where, you know, in one sense it can't be just up to individuals. We have to create the political and economic environment where production that's causing the land clearing is reduced. And that's where things like a carbon tax can come into it, where it can help drive demand by increasing the cost of production for certain products, which are the high-emitting products. Mark Wooten is interesting. Uh, He's a a farmer, with, as I mentioned, with a a property in Victoria. And uh, he's been very, very heavily involved with the Australian Conservation Foundation. And his wife is Eve Cantor, who happens to be a niece of Rupert Murdoch. And one of the things he did for Australian Conservation Foundation was to redevelop a building in Carlton, Near, if anybody knows Melbourne, Carlton is an inner suburb, and and the building's actually a stone's throw, or very very close to Queen Victoria Market. It's called the 60L Building. It's in Leicester 60 Leicester Street, Carlton, and it was redeveloped as a green building, so it's very very high tech and and rates very high environmentally. But uh, companies formed by wooden uh, actually gifted that building to Australian Conservation Foundation and he has been a board member of Australian Conservation Foundation and he and his wife are honorary life members of that group so certainly uh, he he has uh, some very strong connections in that regard and and he also founded the Climate Institute, which is based in Sydney, and he's he's the chair of the Climate Institute. So you have people like John Connor, who's the CEO of the Climate Institute, who in turn uh, is involved in lots of different groups. He's He's been a governor of Australian Youth Climate Coalition and has been involved with Australian Conservation Foundation himself and various other groups as well. So uh, he's... You know, providing support for, for various groups and a lot of activity around the place as well. And some of the people uh, involved with the MSSI, which I mentioned at Melbourne University, Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute, uh, Tim Flannery is, is one of those. And Tim Flannery himself has received funding from Rob Purvis. So Tim Flannery's early book, The Weathermakers, was funded in large part by Rob Purvis and his latest book Atmosphere of Hope was dedicated to Rob Purvis and Tim Flannery as we know is a former Australian of the year so he does get a lot of publicity and is highly regarded by a lot of people so Tim Flannery has also been uh, or had a contract with Meat Livestock Australia in the past uh, to promote so-called sustainable farming so Tim Flannery is also involved with Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute, uh, along, along with another person who's received funding from Meat and Livestock Australia, uh, Richard Eckhart. And there are, there are other people involved with that group as well. David Caroli, he's, he's part of the, the core group there, or the executive committee there, I think. He's, he's one, of the, one of the governing parts of MSSI. And uh, he's also a member of the Wentworth Group of Concerned Scientists, which as I mentioned earlier was co-founded by Rob Purvis. So there's so many of these connections. There yeah. there, there are only a few.
0: What about the da- there was a Dairy Australia?
1: Dairy Co- Australia connection also there. yeah, they are funding or providing some funding to Richard Eckhart, who who is with Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute. And and Richard Eckhart has written articles for the Conversation and and is is been referred to on ABC Radio, so he's got a fairly high profile, and a lot of what he writes seems to favour meat consumption. Uh, another person in the presentation is is Clive Hamilton, who many years ago created the the Australia Institute, so a progressive think tank. And Mark Wooten, the cattle farmer, is a, a former board member of the Australia Institute and provided some funding for it as well, which, which Clive Hamilton was very grateful for in, in a speech he gave and probably other times as well. And Clive has written books about climate change. He's written Requiem for a Species and, and Scorch of the Dirty Politics of Climate Change. So he's, he's got a, a, a very, very high interest in climate change and and very importantly now he is he's actually a member of the climate change authority which is an independent federal government agency advising the Australian federal government on this issue so you you've had this connection between Clive Hamilton and and Mark Wootton in the past it it may be ongoing now and 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 Clive is still or seems to be very influential certainly having a position on the climate change authority and, and uh, another person on the Climate Change Authority is, is David Crowley from Melbourne University, who is is a member of the Wentworth Group of Concern, Concerned Scientists, which was co-founded by, by Rob Purvis. So two people uh, very heavily involved in the federal government's approach to climate change uh, have had this involvement. In, in organisations that that are linked to to Mark Whitten or Rob Purvis.
0: This is Freedom of Species on Three CR Community Radio, and that last song was simply called Vegan. It's by singer songwriter Ari Lesser from Ohio. Today we're hearing from Paul Marnie about the links between Australian environmental organisations and the cattle industry. What's the significance of having these wealthy cattle farmers like Mm. Wooten and Mm. Purvis, Mm. having them on boards of environmental organisations? Does it really matter?
1: Well, they're coming from a livestock background and livestock... As we've said, as we're saying is is a major contributor to climate change and other environmental problems. So, if a group's focus is conservation of the natural environment and that type of thing, for example, ACF Australian Conservation Foundation, or uh, who who talk about climate change and other groups like Environment Victoria, who who have climate change as a very big part of what they do, and a- AYCC obviously. Uh, if what if those groups were to invite somebody from the fossil fuel sector onto their board? Would that be regarded as a natural thing to do? I don't think it would.
0: Yeah, it would seem to be a major conflict, wouldn't it? I think it would. And, and, and people would just
1: see that and react negatively, I believe. But for some reason, they're not seeing the, the involvement of, of these people on the organisations at the moment. So it's it's just an interesting comparison, I think. Yeah, I, I think that, that that they would struggle with that idea. And if we say that animal ag is a major contributor to climate change, as is fossil fuels, then why distinguish one from the other?
0: Yeah, it's a very good point. Mm. Uh,
1: a lot of these people will argue that meat production is or can be sustainable. Uh, my My view is that as I mentioned in the presentation, it's a sustainable beef to me is a bit of an oxymoron. To me, it's a bit like talking about clean coal because <laughs> the fundamentals are so, so much against it because you're coming from such a high base, really, where the emissions intensity of beef production is so high. That is mm. the kilograms of greenhouse gases per kilogram of, of end product. Um or you can measure it as kilograms of, of protein because people seem to get a bit hung up on protein and want to know where to, you know, where to get your protein from and all that type of thing. And the pr- emissions from beef production are enormous compared to, to other products. Certainly uh, plant-based products are, are very low generally, You know, around two kilograms, three, four kilograms of greenhouse gas per kilogram of product. But... If you look at um, a 20-year time horizon for measuring beef's emissions globally, the global average on that basis is is over 200 kilograms of greenhouse gases per kilogram of of product. If you use a conventional 100-year time frame to measure it, the, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations estimate that beef's global average is 102 kilograms. Now, that's global average. Uh, grass-fed meat is is higher than that because, contrary to a lot of popular opinion, grass-fed cows produce more greenhouse gases than grain-fed, and that's partly because of the digestive process and having to having to digest that that grass.
0: The best that sustainable farming can do is maybe mm. it can mitigate some of the carbon emissions. Yeah. It can reduce it, mm. but there's no way to bring it down to anything. Of a respectable level of no, carbon emissions, right. it's always going to be. Yeah, it's always going to be one of the highest emission industries. Yeah, it can. They can only mitigate it. No,
1: that, that's exactly right. I talk about paradigms. It's on a different paradigm to the plant yeah. to plant based agriculture. So you can you can make incremental improvements. You can do things which the industry talks about through additives in in livestock feed and things like that. And the industry says that the grasses in northern Australia are a more favourable than people once thought, this type of thing. But you're still coming from a very high base. And the industry can produce figures like one study which, which claimed that beef's emissions intensity was only about 13 kilograms of, of greenhouse gas. And certainly in australia the emissions are lower they they do vary a lot by country and and in countries with advanced agricultural systems they are lower than the global average uh, that's partly you know it's due to things like feed digestibility it's it's about growth rates of animals because the the faster a, 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 an animal can achieve slaughter weight the the lower the emissions because the animal's been around for less time emitting yeah. methane and 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 causing nitrous oxide to to be emitted and all that type of thing. So that, that does help. But, uh, you know, a study which was funded by Meat and Livestock Australia came up with a figure of about 13 kilograms in Australia. But there, I had a number of issues with that. For example, you know, simple things like they were using out-of-date figures to determine the global warming potential of the greenhouse gases like methane. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: it's convenient, isn't it? Now tell me, I know you've been campaigning on mm-hmm. animal agriculture and, and climate change for... For mm. several years, mm-hmm. and you've spoken to me before about the frustrations of mm-hmm. of campaigning mm. with uh, talking to climate change activists, and they're just they're not they're not hearing you. They just mm. they're not they don't want to engage on the topic yep. of animal agriculture. Mm. Mm. Can you give me some examples mm. of of these mm. responses that you get?
1: Mm. Yeah, sure, sure. I, I've I've attended some groups, different discussions, and ask some questions along the way and things like this. And I've uh, found responses like, for example, speaking from the floor about the issue to, in, in a group which is a climate change group, a climate change campaign group, and highlighting these issues and then being told from the front of the room, you know, a you know, person will make a statement, yeah, but I like my meat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're just not hearing the message because these people... It, it, yeah you know, they'll be out there marching on the streets, they'll be they'll be organising people to do all sorts of campaigning, They're spending a large part of their life campaigning largely against fossil fuels. These
0: are almost like these are what you'd almost describe as professional climate change campaigners. Yeah,
1: very, very passionate people. Yep. they recognise the crisis that the the planet is in that, yep. that that we are in and all all life forms on the planet. So they're doing everything they can to convince people to do something about it. But they themselves, when they're given this other factor, just give that sort of comment that they like their meat. And and I've put my hand up at presentations by very prominent writers on this issue, people who are highly regarded in the climate change community, and raised this sort of issue about the comparison between the emissions intensity of different products, and I've I've given that sort of comparison that I gave before about aluminium versus beef, you know, sixteen kilograms mm. versus two hundred nine kilograms, etc. And just told you know things like, well, yeah, uh, I understand it's important, but I don't know enough about it, and know, uh, yeah, these are people who've. Been researching climate change for years mm. and have not looked, even looked at this aspect, or have chosen not to
0: look at this aspect. So sounds well, a bit convenient, doesn't it? That how yeah. could you possibly not? I just don't understand. If you've spent that much time yeah. looking at how could this, yeah. how could this aspect? Yeah. Um, evade you
1: well and and what i say to people is that they're really wasting their time because as, as i said earlier I, i'm convinced we will not overcome climate change unless we do you know we have to deal with fossil fuels i don't argue that mm. for a minute but we also have to deal with animal agriculture so i just feel these people are completely wasting their time mm. they they might as well give up now because they're just staving off, you know, putting off the inevitable.
0: Is it because it's it's easy to point the finger at the, the mining companies and go, sure. you have to close down yeah, exactly right. your yeah. mine because that's you're right. ruining the environment. Right. But please don't point your finger at me and my yeah, diet. exactly right. Closing down Hazelwood doesn't mm. really no. to impose any inconvenience no, on one of those No, because people will
1: assume they'll still get their le- electricity from, from different somewhere. sources, yep. clean sources. So that's fine. They've solved that problem. Yep. And then they can go home and have a steak to celebrate or do yep. whatever they want. But you're exactly right. It is a lifestyle choice. I wish people could understand. And I guess I'm I'm probably fortunate because I found moving away from animal food products one of the easiest things I ever did. Uh, A lot of people don't feel that that, that'll be the case for them. But even if it's not, isn't there too much at stake? Pardon, Pardon the pun. The pun? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean that. <laughs> Different form of state, but there, there is too much of state. We're trying to save the or, or retain a habitable planet after all, because you know people like um, Hans Joachim Schellnhuber, the German scientist on climate change, says I think it was a four degree planet. Um, we'll be able to uh, provide a home for less than a billion people. So we yeah you know, we just can't let our temperature get up to the I mean four degrees is crazy. There's a strong argument that two degrees is crazy. Even yeah. one point five is very dangerous. Yeah. Uh, we are really I believe at the brink, and we have to pull out all stops. And here we have a, a, what I believe is a critical part or part of the solution. If if there is enough time to have a solution, and it's it's just being ignored by these people. They don't even want to talk about it to find out a little bit more about it. I, I've, I've written to very, very prominent campaign groups in this country offering to provide some material for their website. Like, if they don't have enough time to campaign on it, surely they can get somebody. If it's not me, they can find somebody else who they want who can write a page for their website to say why animal mm-hmm. agriculture is a critical issue. So their supporters who might be just going through their website one day, might be influenced by that and might decide they want to do something for it. So there's no point just focusing solely on fossil fuels because that's not going to get us there. Hansen he actually came up with the figure of 350 for Bill McKibben when Bill McKibben formed 350.org. He was he was asking Hansen to give him a number, give him a number. what do we have to get to? And Hands it said you have to get to three fifty or below. We're currently four. This I should say this is parts per million of of CO two. This is even before allowing for methane and others. Get, you know, but three fifty parts per million in the atmosphere of carbon dioxide. <clears throat> uh, Pre industrial revolution, we were at about two eighty. In a million years, we've never exceeded three hundred parts per million. We're now at about 400 parts per million. It's absolutely frightening. And most of that's happened since the middle of last century. So it it's it's continuing to increase. So Hansen said that to get to 350, you need to deal with the land use issues as well. It's not simply a matter of ending fossil fuel use. You need to look at soil carbon and forests as well. And so much of our globe is taken up with feed crops for animals and grazing land for animals. And even in Australia, people, when they go out and they drive in the country and they see sparse open grasslands with a few trees dotted around, they think that's natural. But I, I quote in some of my material, a book published through CSIRO Publishing a few years ago, where they said that it was once possible to walk from Melbourne, if you wanted to walk all that way, from Melbourne to Sydney through through forest and other wooded vegetation. Um, this this continent was very, very heavily wooded in, in the temperate zones, at least. And, and where we see cleared land, a bit like the, the Guinea savannah example in Africa that I was talking about earlier, that, you know, that Guinea savannah, much of that is high rainfall areas that, that would allow revegetation. And in our temperate zones, we, we, have, we have the conditions that would also allow re, revegetation and even in, in some of the more arid zones as well. So we, we we do have the potential to mitigate much of the impact and, and allow the, the land to regenerate, which we're just unfortunately ignoring. So that's, that's a large part of my frustration that, yeah. that people really just don't want to engage on the issue.
0: Yeah, and, and that includes these environmental organisations. <laughs> exactly.
1: Another one I should mention... Which I find pretty interesting is that the the WWF Australia with Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute, the Melbourne University group, have issued two two books. One is is Planet to Plate, which has recipes uh, f- uh, dealing with the impact of climate change on food production. Another one dealing with the same issue but no recipes it was called Appetite for Change. But th- those. Books or publications. One, one was a cookbook. One was one was a, a, a shorter publication, but they they were more concerned about the impact of climate change on beef production <laughs> and, <laughs> and other other livestock production. They yeah. were concerned about that aspect of it, and they didn't comment on the fact that that production is contributing to climate change. So yeah. there's a real disconnect here, and it's very very frustrating when you see very highly regarded scientists involved in the publication of these these books or the 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 publications themselves not even considering that that issue i just don't understand that and and so that's where in putting this out i'm simply saying hey everybody look look at the connections here and look what's being overlooked. Mm. And my, maybe, I don't know, it might prompt some of these people. They might not like it or they might say, hey, you've got a point. Maybe we start need to start looking at this. I've, I've got a blog and the first article I ever wrote in my blog was called uh, Omissions of Emissions. <laughs> <laughs> and what I was talking about was this very issue that even our national greenhouse accounts have very large omissions in what they're counting. For example, <clears throat> in terms of livestock's impact, they, they, don't, they don't count any livestock-related land clearing, even though livestock is the largest reason for land clearing mm. in this country. They assign the land clearing to another category altogether. So they, they look at enteric fermentation. That's the process of producing methane in the animal. And they'll look at nitrous oxide, and that's about it. But there's these these other factors that they don't count. So, in the official figures, they're not counted or identified against livestock, and right through these these campaigning people like the, the Greens, uh, don't address the issue either. And uh, they, you know they, they they've worked closely. They've had some close connections with with people like AYCC and Get Up and others. Uh, I've raised a question at one of uh, or a green green politicians forum it was actually a forum run by Adam Bant in in a Melbourne a few years back and and raised the fact that as far as i understood the the greens were not advocating for a carbon tax on agriculture and i got a what i felt was a very poor response back but if you're not counting it if you're not if you're not going to, uh, if you're going to introduce a carbon tax, again, going back to James Hansen, he, he, he says a carbon tax should be introduced, but given back fully to the community through the tax system and through the welfare system. So all you're doing entirely is creating a pricing signal. You cr- you're, what you're doing is saying that some products are low emissions, some are high emissions. Because of the tax, the high emissions products are more likely to cost more. People will still have money in their pocket because the, the, the money that's raised through the carbon tax will be given back to the community. And what you've done is created a price signal. So somebody will, will go to the supermarket and after the tax is introduced, we'll see that beef is more expensive than it used to be. But the soybean alternative, lots of products made from soybeans or legumes or other things, will be lower than it was, perhaps or much lower relative to beef than it had been. So you're encouraging people to purchase those low emissions products. So if we're all about climate change and trying to reduce the impacts of climate change, you've got a a real winner there. But again, these potential measures uh, don't even come into the frame by these environmental groups because they're they're largely ignoring the, the impact of livestock. They're just not looking at it.
0: What did you find out about the Greens?
1: The Greens. Well, I've written to the Greens myself back in two thousand and eight. So it was really through direct involvement. I, I wrote to Bob Brown's office and to Christine Milne's office and just raised this issue with them. And I and their, received, their response. Well, Christine Milne wrote back, and I had a letter addressed, I was signed by Christine Milne, which was which was very good of her, I think. And what she did, she sent me a copy of the Greens' animal welfare policy. <laughs> I do campaign for animal rights as well, and I I say to people that whether it's for animals or the planet, that a vegan lifestyle is – well, either of those issues justifies – almost makes, a, in fact, a vegan lifestyle an imperative – so she, was, she must have assumed that I was coming from the point of view of animals where I never even mentioned right. animal rights or animal welfare in she, my letter. She knew you. <laughs> Maybe. So, and I wrote back, and I wrote back to Christine. I said, Christine, I wasn't even talking about animal welfare or animal rights. I was talking about climate change. Hmm. She, said, she wrote back again and said, well, we, we can't mandate what people eat. And I said, I'm not talking about mandating, I'm talking about informing people. Because if people mm. don't know of these issues, mm. They, they, mm. they they won't be motivated mm. to do anything about it. And creating price signals is not mandating anything. We do it all the time. Exactly right. So why not do it for this? Uh, in respect to Bob Brown's office, he didn't write to me directly, but I, I did receive a fairly terse response from one of his staff members telling me that I... I need to be very careful about undermining what he, who, somebody who he described as Australia's most credible and eloquent spokesman on, on the environment. But my, I, I wrote back and we had a couple of exchanges because if you're not addressing this issue, I don't regard anybody in those terms. I think that they are overlooking a critical factor. And as I said earlier, they're basically, to a large extent just wasting their time. And it's extremely frustrating. You know, I was out at the, the climate march last November with a sign uh, which said something like, we, have, we must stop burning fossil fuels and the next line, eating animals. I said actually I said the ultimate inconvenient truth at the top of that poster it was double sided poster so I, I was, saw that I, I was, saw that good. placard I'm glad. it I'm was glad. it
0: was it was huge <laughs> yeah. you couldn't
1: miss it so I was trying to make the point and I, I just think that that is well that is the message that I, you know I don't I don't try to argue that livestock production accounts for this percentage or that percentage of global greenhouse gas emissions. There are too many variables in anybody's calculations, but it's a significant contribution. And going back to what I said about James Hansen earlier and the need to revegetate and all that, what I say is that we simply will not get there. We simply will not overcome climate change unless we address the animal agriculture
0: issue as well. We've um, That's all t- the time we have... Um, to talk today on this subject, we could talk for hours on this because it is so involved. Mm-hmm. There's so much to talk about, and I really hope, Paul, that you're not um, end up, you know, one day having a link with these, getting bought out possibly <laughs> by one of these links. One of these. No, I think I'm okay. I might. You'll so. have to. We have to have a code word, so you can sort of you can tell me. In a, in a message. I don't know if I ever see something like the fat man walks along. Right. I don't know.
1: <laughs> Something's happened. Something's happened. Yeah, Paul's
0: yeah. been bought out and he's yeah. trying to let us know that he mm. can't speak freely anymore.
1: <laughs> It'll only happen if they start noticing me. they be very happy if they start noticing <laughs> me anyway. But we'll, we'll wait and see. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, I, st- I poke them occasionally. So uh, do, yeah. I'll, I'll have to do that a little bit more. Keep poking. Yeah. Please keep yeah. poking.
0: Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Kate. This is Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio. And that interview was with, Paul Marnie, who was speaking about the impacts of animal agriculture on climate change and also about his investigation of the links between some of the key environmental organisations in Australia and some of their big beefy supporters. Now I can imagine that you might be a little bewildered by some of the verbal descriptions of the web that links all these people and organizations. So if that's the case, just get online and watch Paul's presentation for yourself. It's only about fifteen minutes long. Uh, and then once you've done that, all will become much clearer. You can find it on Paul's blog, terrestendo.net, and that's spelt T-E-R-R-A-S-T-E-N-D-O, or alternatively on his Vimeo page. It's also on our Freedom of Species Facebook page, or you can always just Google the link that too many ignore. Before I go, I've got a community announcement for you. Sea Shepherd Marine Debris Campaign is having several different cleanup days uh, very soon. There's going to be cleanup days at Adelaide's Seacliff Beach and at Sydney's Maribra Beach on Saturday, the 17th of September. And there's going to be cleanup days at Exmouth and Fremantle on Sunday, the 18th of September. Details for those events will be on the Sea Shepherd Marine Debris Campaign. Facebook page. Thanks, heaps, for tuning in. Thanks also to Paul Marnie and Ari Lessa. You can contact Freedom of Species by email, info at freedomofspecies.org, or via our Facebook and Twitter pages. I'm leaving you with one more Ari Lessa song. It's called Peace. See you next week.